Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. Come to democracynow.org on November 8th to watch Democracy Now!'s three-hour midterm election night special. We'll be covering the key congressional races, which will determine the balance of power in Congress. Plus, we'll look at gubernatorial races and ballot initiatives around the country. Join us to hear the voices of activists, analysts, grassroots leaders discussing how the movements on the ground will go forward following these critical midterm elections. You can watch online at democracynow.org starting at 9 p.m. Eastern, Tuesday, November 8th. From New York, this is Democracy Now! Ayom Zachinu. Today we have won a huge vote of confidence. Benjamin Netanyahu is set to return as Israel's prime minister, this time with hope from a far-right party led by a lawmaker who supports the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians and was once convicted of supporting a terrorist organization. We'll get the latest. Then we look at how New York immigrant rights advocates are supporting thousands of asylum seekers sent to the city on buses from Texas and other states. That's kidnapping. Any way you look at it, if I'm forced on a bus and not told where my next destination is or what's the next step, that is kidnapping. I don't care how you look at it. And then you drop them off at a random location. But that's fine. When they get to New York, we'll take care of them. New York will welcome them. New York will take care of them and make them feel like they're home. And The Intercept has revealed the Department of Homeland Security's expanding efforts to work with private tech companies to police online speech and shape online discourse. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu is poised to become prime minister for a third time, 16 months after he was ousted from office amidst a series of corruption scandals. Results from Tuesday's election show Netanyahu's Likud party and its far-right allies won 64 seats in the Knesset, enough to form a parliamentary majority. A key member of his government will likely be Itamar Ben-Gavir, an old ultranationalist lawmaker who openly supports the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. This comes as Israeli security forces killed four Palestinians in the occupied West Bank in East Jerusalem Thursday, while Israeli fighter jets bombed the Gaza Strip. Israeli forces have killed at least 130 Palestinians in the West Bank this year. We'll have the latest from Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories after headlines. U.S. intelligence officials say Russian troops are poised for a complete withdrawal from Kherson as Ukrainian forces advance on the city, which Russia has occupied since early March. Russian forces have withdrawn to the eastern bank of the Dnieper River. And earlier today, Russian President Vladimir Putin said civilians should evacuate the Kherson region. It's one of four Ukrainian territories which Russia claimed to have annexed in September. Elsewhere, Russian and Ukraine completely Completed another prisoner swap Thursday, with each side releasing 107 POWs. United Nations nuclear inspectors have found no evidence to back Russia's claims that Ukraine is building a radiological weapon known as a dirty bomb. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky spoke Thursday. 
We've invited the IAEA to check. We've given them complete freedom of action at the relevant facilities. And we have clear and irrefutable evidence that no one in Ukraine has created or is creating any dirty bomb. In Zaporizhia, the operator of Europe's largest nuclear power plant says the facility has two weeks of diesel fuel for its backup generators. IAEA Director General Rafael Grossi has reiterated calls for a security protection zone around the Zaporizhia plant after fighting once again severed outside power to the plant's cooling systems, which are critical to preventing a radiation disaster. Grossi said Thursday reliance on diesel generators is quote, clearly not a sustainable way to operate a major nuclear facility, unquote. In Pakistan, former Prime Minister Imran Khan is in stable condition after he was shot in the leg Thursday at a rally in Wazirabad. One person was killed, at least 10 others injured, in the apparent assassination attempt. Khan has accused top government officials, including the prime minister, of being behind the attack. Local police released a video of the alleged gunman who said he acted alone, though the confession's authenticity has not been verified. Imran Khan was misleading people, and I could not bear that. That is why I did this. So I killed him. I tried to kill him. I tried my best to kill him. Only Imran Khan. I did not want to kill anyone else. The attack on Imran Khan came one week into his high-profile journey across Pakistan to demand snap elections after he was removed from power in April. United Nations is calling on nations to agree to a historic new agreement at the COP27 climate summit, which opens in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, on Sunday. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres said Thursday nations will face climate catastrophe unless they rapidly deliver on commitments made at the 2015 Paris Climate Summit. COP27 must be the place to rebuild trust and reestablish the ambition needed to avoid driving our planet over the climate cliff. In the last few weeks, report after report has painted a clear and bleak picture. In one new report, UNESCO warns one-third of the glaciers that have been declared World Heritage Sites will disappear by 2050, even if nations take dramatic action to curb emissions. That includes glaciers in Yosemite National Park in California and Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania. Meanwhile, the UN's Environment Program warns in a new report wealthy countries are falling far short of their commitments to help communities adapt to a warming world. The report finds the cost of of adapting to climate change could top a half trillion dollars annually by mid-century, dwarfing the less than $30 billion countries have so far received to adapt to the climate crisis. In Egypt, the Egyptian-British writer, philosopher and political prisoner Ala Abdel Fattah is poised to escalate his hunger strike into a water strike when the COP27 climate settlement gets underway on Sunday. That means no water or food at all. Abdel Fattah has already been on a hunger strike for more than 200 days to demand his freedom, after he was jailed over much of the last nine years for his role in the 2011 revolution that ousted Egypt's longtime dictator Hosni Mubarak. Ala's sister, Mona Saif, spoke from London Thursday after meeting with Britain's Middle East minister and the British foreign secretary earlier this week. Once he starts the water strike, the body can only 
sustain itself so much. So we are talking about a few days in which either the UK government has to step up um, what they are doing and, and the UK government and the Egyptian government has have to agree on a solution to that um, situation or we are going to lose Ali in prison. Another of Ali's sisters, Sana Saif, says she plans to attend the COP27 talks next week. You can see our coverage of Ala Abdel Fattah's case and our coverage of the UN climate talks at democracynow.org. Democracy Now! will be in Sharm el-Sheikh for the summit. Canada is continuing to press for foreign military intervention in Haiti amidst worsening political, economic and gang crises. This is Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. We understand how many Haitians there are who don't want to see international intervention. It's a reality. At the same time, we look at the crisis, rapes and violence, the poverty and the cholera and the health crisis, and then we say to ourselves, we have to intervene in one way or another. Meanwhile, over 90 civil society groups wrote a letter to President Biden urging him to reject outside military intervention in Haiti and instead pursue diplomacy and support Haitian-led political dialogue. They write, quote, We were heartened to see in your 2022 national security strategy a commitment to not use our military to change regimes or remake societies, and we encourage you to follow through on that commitment in Haiti, they write. The United Nations General Assembly has overwhelmingly condemned the United States' embargo on Cuba. 185 countries Thursday voted in favor of lifting the decades-old sanctions which have devastated Cuba's economy since the 60s. Only the U.S. and Israel voted against the motion, while Brazil and Ukraine abstained. Billionaire Elon Musk met Thursday with over half a dozen civil rights groups amid concerns the new owner of Twitter will let misinformation and hate speech go unchecked. Media Matters, Free Press and dozens more groups urge Twitter's top advertisers to remove their ads from the platform if proper safety standards are not imposed. Meanwhile, Musk is reportedly firing thousands of employees, about half of Twitter's workforce, starting today and requiring remaining workers to return to on-site work. Some Twitter employees filed a class-action lawsuit alleging the firings are unlawful. Nearly 50,000 University of California student workers are set to go on strike if a deal isn't reached with university officials on higher wages and other demands. On Wednesday, over 35,000 University of California student workers voted in favor of authorizing a strike beginning November 14th. They're demanding salary increases that keep pace with the skyrocketing cost of living in California, as well as free public transit passes and reimbursement of child care costs. And human rights activists led an 18-hour protest Thursday outside New York City Hall as they continued to demand officials shut down the Rikers Island jail complex. The demonstration was in response to the death this week of 26-year-old Gilberto Garcia, the 18th person to die at Rikers so far this year. He'd been jailed at Rikers for three years as he awaited trial. He died of an apparent drug overdose, but a cause of death has not been confirmed. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show in Israel, where Benjamin Netanyahu is preparing to become prime minister again. 
16 months after being ousted from office. Results from Tuesday's election show Netanyahu's Likud party and its far-right allies won 64 seats in the Knesset, enough votes to form a parliamentary majority. Netanyahu served as prime minister from 1996 to 99, and then again from 2009 to 2021. He's currently on trial for corruption. A key member of his government will likely be Itamar Ben-Gavir, an ultra-nationalist lawmaker who openly supports the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. In 2007, he was convicted of incitement to racism and supporting a terrorist organization. Ben-Gavir lives in an illegal settlement in the occupied West Bank. Last year, he relocated his parliamentary office to the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood of Jerusalem, where settlers have attempted to violently evict Palestinian residents from their homes. For years, Itamar Ben-Gavir hung a picture in his home of Baruch Goldstein, an Israeli-American who killed 29 Palestinians at a mosque in Hebron in 1994. The Jerusalem Post's editor-in-chief described Ben-Gavir as, quote, the modern Israeli version of an American white supremacist and a European fascist, unquote. The return of Netanyahu comes as Israeli security forces killed four Palestinians in the occupied West Bank and Jerusalem Thursday, while Israeli fighter jets bombed Gaza. Israeli forces have killed at least 130 Palestinians in the West Bank this year. Many Palestinians fear the return of Netanyahu will only make things work. This is Yusuf Khattab, a resident of Gaza. None of the governments that were formed by Benjamin Netanyahu in the previous year gave the Palestinian people their rights. He was even rejecting all agreements with the Palestinian Authority. This upcoming government is an extreme right government. As a result, the Palestinian people will not witness anything but war, destruction, killing, and more bloodshed, house demolitions, land uprooting, land confiscation, and the building of more settlements. We're joined right now by Natasha Roth-Roland. She's an editor and writer at 972 Magazine and a doctoral candidate in history at the University of Virginia. Her research and writing focuses on the Jewish far right in Israel, Palestine and the United States. Natasha, welcome to Democracy Now! First of all, can you lay out the significance of this victory? And it's not only about Benjamin Netanyahu, but who he is allied with, the parties that will make up his coalition, and who they are. Certainly. Um, I mean, the first thing to say, really, is that the, the election results from Tuesday are very, very grim. Um, if you were watching the polls leading up to the elections, it sort of looked like it might be a bit of a toss-up. It looked, at some points, as if Netanyahu's bloc might get 61 seats, which is a, a you know a very very razor thin margin in a Knesset of 120 seats. Sometimes it looked as if the so-called anti-Netanyahu bloc would get 61 seats. Uh, he has now landed a 64 seat majority, uh, which is stronger than I think most people were anticipating. And as you say, it's not just about Netanyahu himself returning to power, you know, accompanied by this litany of criminal charges, which may well be dispensed with uh, if the incoming coalition gets its way with the judicial system. But it's also about Netanyahu's allies. Uh, chief among those, as you mentioned, is Itamar Ben-Gvir. He is the head of the Otmeyodid party, which ran with religious Zionism in these elections. And they brought in an unprecedented haul of 14 seats. That is the third largest party in the Knesset. This is going to be a whole new level of power for the extreme right in the government. 
And the thing I'll add to that is I think there is an understandable impulse to say that no matter who is in power in the Israeli government, not much changes. The occupation continues. Violence and surveillance against Palestinians inside the Green Line continue. Bombardments of Gaza continue. Everything we've seen in the past year is a gruesome testament to that. But unfortunately, things can always get worse. And under what looks like the new government, they will get worse. The question is how much. So tell us who Itamar Gavir is. In an October 1995 interview, he can be seen holding an ornament taken from Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin's car by far-right Israeli activists during a protest against Rabin and the Oslo Accords. People managed to get to this symbol from Rabin's car. The symbol is a symbol, and it symbolizes that just as we got this symbol, we can get to Rabin. That was Itamar Ben-Gavir in October 1995, so that was actually um, decades ago. A short time later, November 4th, 1995, a Jewish extremist assassinated Yitzhak Rabin in Tel Aviv. Your comment, Natasha. I mean, the first thing I want to make clear is that the the assassin, uh, Yigal Amir, was not part of the same youth movement uh, that Itamar Ben-Gvir was, uh, but they shared similar ideologies. Itamar Ben-Gvir at that time was a youth activist with the Kach movement. Kach was the extreme right party founded by America Hanna, an American-born rabbi and ultranationalist who emigrated to Israel in the 1970s formed this party and, after a few unsuccessful attempts, managed to get elected to the Knesset in 1984. His party was banned from running in 1988, ostensibly uh, due to its racist and anti-democratic platform, but the charge to ban it was actually led by other far-right parties who worried that Kach was going to begin nibbling away at their voter base. Um, Having said that, even though Kach was banned from running in elections, it stuck around as a political movement. It was outlawed in 1994 after the terror attack you mentioned by Baruch Goldstein, uh, where he murdered 29 Palestinians at prayer in Hebron. But it has continued to have this kind of coterie of core activists, uh, despite its its banning as a terrorist organization in Israel-Palestine. So that was the context in which Itamar Ben-Gvir spoke to the media in that clip that we just saw. He has maintained his views in the intervening decades He had this photograph of Goldstein on his living room wall for decades. He was finally convinced to take it down in 2020 uh, by some of his partners who he was running in elections with. He has since recanted uh, his earlier statements that he sees Goldstein as a hero and as a defender of the Jewish people. It's my view that those statements are not to be taken seriously. I think they fit in the same bucket as his supposed moderation of his views on Palestinians and any kind of uh, liberal vision for what Israel-Palestine should look like. One of his own party activists was caught on camera admitting that his apparent moderation of his views was just a ploy to make sure that he did not get struck from being able to run for the Knesset. Uh, And that's who we have at the top of a faction, uh, number two, Justin Betzalel Smotrich, who's the head of religious Zionism that Otsmi Odi ran with, that's who we have coming into the Knesset as a potential king- kingmaker. The ministry that he is seeking and may well get is Minister of Public Security. That puts him in charge of the police, 
Uh, and the prospects for that, I think, are frightening. So, <clears throat> although you say he recanted, I wanted to go back to a decade ago, July 2011, when Ben Gavir told a reporter why he chose to put that photograph of Baruch Goldstein on the wall of his home. He's a righteous man. He's a hero. This is a doctor who saved Jews throughout his life. And so how much power um, does he have today? Talk about what this means, what Netanyahu has had in the past um, and who he's with today. And also the fact that Itamar Ben-Gavir relocated his parliamentary office to the Sheikh Shirah neighborhood of Jerusalem, um, where uh, and, and the significance of what that means. Well, I'll say the, the, the relocation to Sheikh Jarrah was, was somewhat of a political stunt. Um, ben Gvir has really followed in the footsteps of his mentor, America Hanna, which is, you know, being very, uh, I, I should maybe say, astute uh, in figuring out where the hotspot of tension is at any given time in Israel-Palestine and descending on it. Uh, it wasn't a permanent relocation. It was sort of a desk with, with a banner above it, but it was intended to uh, incite tensions and confrontations, and he was successful in doing so. Um, now, as a coalition partner to, to Netanyahu, I mean, it remains to be seen what aspects of his party's platform he is able to push forward uh, I think in terms of assisting Netanyahu, as I said before, uh, the attacks on the judiciary, which are intended to get Netanyahu off the hook in his various corruption trials, I think is a very likely prospect. Ben Gvir himself wants to encourage emigration, uh, I'll put that in inverted commas, emigration of Palestinians from within Israel-Palestine on both sides of the Green Line. He wants to make it much easier for uh, Israeli security forces to punish, I should say, Palestinians on both sides of the Green Line with minimal uh, repercussions. There is already a great deal of impunity enjoyed by soldiers and police officers acting against Palestinians. He wants to make that impunity even broader. And he wants to, in his own words, crack down on reformed Jews. Uh, there were some easing of, of processes for conversion and so on regarding reformed Jews in Israel-Palestine over the past year. Those look set to be rolled back. Uh, his party also looks set to uh, attack the LGBTQ community. They want to reverse the ban on so-called conversion therapy. Uh, and just yesterday, the head of the Noam party, which is part of the religious Zionism slate uh, that won 14 seats in this last election, said that he wants to try and legally ban pride parades. Um, back on that issue of Sheikh Jarrah, I wanted to play a clip of Ben Gavir. Um, this is just last month, waving a gun and shouting during a confrontation in this neighborhood. If they, Palestinians, throw stones, shoot them. He said, shoot them. He said, uh, this is Mahmoud Saou, a Palestinian who lives in Sheikh Jarrah, describing Itamar Ben-Gavir's actions in his neighborhood. 
هذا طبعا ضمن الخطه للاستيلاء على This field office is within the plan to take over Jerusalem, Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood, and the house is there. He sets up his tent here and starts pointing at houses that he wants to take. My house is under threat. My neighbor's house is also under threat. We all receive eviction orders or courts to increase in rent, also orders not to build or renovate. He used to come here and make trouble for everyone. Imagine a Knesset member pulling out his gun towards the people in the neighborhood. We have children and women here. So what do you expect from him if they assigned him as the Minister of Public Security or any ministerial position? Of course he will be more confident and relieved. But as my neighbor said, we don't care, even if he was a prime minister. We are staying in our houses here. This is our legitimate right to defend our houses and children. So, Natasha Roth-Roland, Haaretz ran an editorial titled Kahanaism One, Israel's Now Closing In on a Right-Wing Religious Authoritarian Revolution. Um, so, explain also, um, overall, what this means. Lara Friedman, the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, tweeted Wednesday, reminder, six months before the Israeli election that made Kahanis arguably the most powerful political force in Israel, the Biden administration decided to do its part in normalizing Kahanism by removing Kahanis groups from U.S. list of foreign terrorist organizations where they've been listed for decades, which also, by the way, goes to the um, uh, conviction of Ben Gavir uh, for being part of a terrorist organization and for racism, if you could respond to all of that. I mean, in terms of the uh, what Lara Friedman tweeted about um, the State Department removing Kach and Kahana Chai from uh, Kahana Chai, I'm sorry, is a, is a sort of offshoot of Kach that emerged in the wake of Mayor Kahana's assassination in 1990. Um, I think what Lara Friedman is saying is absolutely correct, and I don't think it, it's the State Department alone that has 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 played a role in this normalization that she discusses. I think it's certainly unhelpful that these two groups were removed from that designation six months ago because. I think that's contributed to this idea that Khanism and Kach and Khanist ideology are somehow relics of the past or, or sufficiently marginal that they don't monitor, they don't merit close monitoring and surveillance. And I think all of that is incorrect. I think it's also of a piece with a, a wider marginalization of, of Ben Gvir and Khanism that I think will unavoidably be be revisited now, but that has played a big role in downplaying the threat posed by his ideology and its potential to win power in the Israeli government. I think if we want to put things into a little bit of a, a more uh, familiar context for watchers here in the U.S., the effect has been a little bit like what happened with Trump during his rise to power before becoming elected president there were these kind of parallel forces where he was dismissed and ridiculed as, you know, an extremist, but also a bit of a joke who never stood a chance of coming to power. But at the same time, he received such an intense media spotlight that he won the kind of coverage that most politicians, I think, can only dream of. The same thing happened with Ben Gvir in Israel-Palestine. He was so long dismissed as, you know, an unpleasant horrendous but marginal phenomenon. But the second that he got into the Knesset, he started being invited repeatedly 
onto Israeli news shows. There was a statistic from earlier this year that said within a given period, he was only second to Prime Minister Naftali Bennett uh, in terms of airtime that he received on the Israeli media. So I think those two things have really combined to push him into this place where he has enjoyed greater exposure than ever, which rather than turning people off him has actually won uh, supporters to him and his party. And all of the, the kind of marginalization and dismissal of the threat that he poses has actually backfired because now he will be going into a governing coalition near the top of the third most powerful party in the coalition and may well be very uh, may very well be in charge of the police forces, as we said. Well, Natasha Roth-Roland, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Editor and writer at 972 Magazine, doctoral candidate in history at the University of Virginia. Her research focusing on the Jewish far right in Israel, Palestine and the United States. Coming up, we look at how New York immigrant rights advocates are supporting thousands of asylum seekers sent to the city on buses from Texas and other states. Stay with us. Jasmine by Hudas Four. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. This week, two Democracy Now! producers went to Port Authority, the bus terminal near Times Square in Manhattan, to meet the New Yorkers who are welcoming thousands of asylum seekers who began arriving in August from the southern U.S. border. Many said they were pressured to get on the buses and misled about where they were being sent. This is Ilsa Thielman, director of Team TLC NYC. A bus arrived from Texas. This is um, one of the buses that are uh, have been sent by uh, Governor Abbott since August. Um, and we had a lot of families on this bus, a lot of little kids. Um, and we handed out some teddy bears and toys and food and water. And, uh, and now we're interviewing the families and finding out what they need. We're going to give them some clothing and we're going to get them to where they need to go. There was a woman who had a neck brace and we immediately got her to the, the medical triage tent. There's a little uh, medical center set up inside the Port Authority bus terminal. The first bus that we greeted, there was a young lady, well, 12-year-old girl, who had diabetes, who had not had insulin for four days. And uh, one of my volunteers is a former nurse, and she quickly identified the problem and got her to the hospital. Uh, but we've had that at least a couple of times, where someone was diabetic and, and hadn't had insulin. People who have not had their proper medications, they had their medications taken from them. We've had people who are completely dehydrated. We had a uh, 
uh, a little boy who had a seizure because he had not had his proper medications. Um, it's just that we've seen all kinds of terrible results from people being uh, mistreated at the border and then being put on a bus for a 36, 40-hour journey without proper food, without proper water. Ilsa Thielman speaking outside the Port Authority bus terminal in the center of Manhattan. She and many other New Yorkers have also opened their homes to the newly arrived asylum seekers who would otherwise face living in New York's already overwhelmed shelter system or in the streets. On Thursday, Democracy Now!'s Maria Teresena spoke to a Venezuelan asylum seeker who arrived in New York in September, is now staying with Thielman. He was apprehended at the Texas-Mexico border and detained for two days. He said he was put on a bus to Washington, D.C., then another to New York City. He asked to remain anonymous for safety. La situación sobre mi país, como estamos hablando sobre eso, bueno, pues te lo digo, este... I left due to the economic situation in my country. You cannot make much money there. I have my daughters, my mother, and I have to support them. That's why I came to the United States. It took me about two months to make it here. I was homeless a lot of the time. I went through the Darien jungle. I was in there for seven days, eating only bread. I got out of there and made it to Panama, then Costa Rica, then Nicaragua. It was complicated. We were always running. I made it to Guatemala, and then we crossed into Mexico. Mexico was a nightmare. They attacked Venezuelans a lot, the police, immigration officials. When I made it to the state of Monterrey, I didn't have money anymore. I had nothing. We searched for a train that's known as the Beast. The train took us all the way to Piedras Negra, near the U.S.-Mexico border. We hid and ran so that immigration agents wouldn't arrest us. We saw Mexican immigration in the Rio Bravo River, so we waited for them to pass on their boats. Then we decided to jump in the river. The water completely covered me. I was being pulled by the river, but swam and made it to the other side. That's when we turned ourselves into the U.S. Immigration Police, and they apprehended us. I came to the United States without any money. All I had was faith in making it here. I would pray to God to take care of me. A lot of the people I came here with who did so much to come here died. The river took them and they drowned. So when I made it, the first thing I said was, thank God. I was blessed in New York. I didn't know anyone here. The woman who I'm staying with has supported me so much. The shelters didn't have room, so she brought us here to her apartment. She gave us food. She gifted me a bicycle. She gave us clothing. I am so thankful to her. I hope I have the opportunity to stay here and work. And if there's the opportunity to bring family with me, one of my daughters, I will do it. That's why we're here, to fight for our families and our children. 
Last month, the Biden administration started expelling Venezuelan asylum seekers to Mexico under an expansion of the uh, Trump-era, pandemic-era Title 42 policy that's blocked at least two million migrants from applying for asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border. For more, we're joined by two people who are working with Ilsa Thielman and others in New York and around the United States to welcome the thousands of asylum seekers who continue to come and those already here who need support as their cases wind through the U.S. immigration courts. One of our guests, Adam Abba, first joined us on Democracy Now! in 2010, when she was 22 years old and had been placed on the no-fly list, even though she'd been granted asylum from Guinea, where she faced female genital mutilation. This is part of our interview then. I came to this country when I was two years old with my mother, and when I was 16, I was detained for immigration reasons. Um, I didn't know I was illegal, so that's when I found out. Um, after three years of battling, I got an asylum in 2007. Um, I wore an ankle bracelet for three and a half years. Wait, explain why you got the political asylum, what it was you faced. Well, again. I got the political asylum because in my country, they circumcise women. So... And you were afraid if you went back, yes. this would happen to you as it did to all the women members of your all family? All the women in my family have, have gotten done, even my mother. Why did you wear an ankle bracelet? They wanted to track my immigration. I don't know. So that was Adamaba in 2010. She joins us now as a community organizer, also author of her own biography, Accused, My Story of Injustice, Eyewitness. Also with us is Power Malu, a community organizer who runs the group Artists, Athletes and Activists. They both have been working closely with Ilsa Thielman and others to assist thousands of newly arriving asylum seekers uh, to New York. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Adam Abba, it's just remarkable what you yourself self went through. Um, you've now just gotten your citizenship? Yes, I just became an American citizen a year ago. But here you are, rather than sort of getting away from the trauma of what you left behind, working to help other people who, like you, are desperate to come to this country. Talk about what you've been doing here and what you face with the thousands of people, in this case, in New York, just coming here. So because of my experience, it was very important for me to be on the ground and help advocate. The system here in New York City is not created for this type of community, which is the migrants that are arriving. So we're at Port Authority every single day, welcoming, welcoming them and helping them navigate into the shelter system. Once they're in the shelter system, we are also helping them with resources, social services. We're also at the airports and other bus terminals. I think one of the things that we definitely want to highlight, Port Authority is not the only route these migrants are coming from. They're coming from airports, other bus terminals around New York City. So talk about where those buses are coming from. We see you at Port Authority greeting uh, the asylum seekers. Uh, what are they telling you? And what about these journeys? And where do they think they're coming to? So the buses coming at Port Authority is coming from Texas. Uh, the ones that are not coming from Port Authority are coming from other states. So Arizona, Ohio, Indiana, those are just some of the few states that they're coming from. Um, but the migrants that are coming specifically from Texas, 
from, um, or at the Abbott buses, we call them. They are just forced into the buses. They're waking up at one o'clock in the morning and told to get on these buses, and they're not sure where they're going. You have some some of them who know that they're going to New York, and a lot of them who don't have any idea. So as soon as they arrive in New York City, my colleague here, Power, the first thing he tells them, you're in New York City at Port Authority in Manhattan. It's it's the best way to identify where they are so there's no confusion. And briefly, we tell them what the next step is. And Power Malou, what is the next step? And how did you get involved with uh, your group, artists, athletes and activists, and being there as a greeter uh, and a person who orients these asylum seekers, why this is so important to you? So I'm born and raised in the Lower East Side. I'm a New Yorican, so my mom and dad were born in Puerto Rico. I was born here in New York, but I still consider myself an immigrant. I think it's very important for people to realize that if you weren't born here 500 years ago, you're an immigrant. If you're not a native to this country, you're an immigrant. And this country was built off the backs of immigrants. And I just want to make that clear. When they come to New York City, this is the first place that we actually have an opportunity to right the wrongs, right? When they first step foot into the United States, they're mistreated. They're put in these cold cells, these cold air-conditioned spaces with just wearing T-shirts. So they arrive to New York sick. They arrive to New York with anxiety levels through the roof. It's up to us. It's our job as New Yorkers to be able to welcome them in this city that is a so-called sanctuary city with the love and the care and the dignity that they deserve. So when we get on the bus, the first thing we do tell them is that they are in New York City. And although they may see police officers and now because we have the National Guard stationed there, they may see uh, people in uniform, uh, military uniform. They're not to be afraid. They are free. They are free and they are welcomed here in New York City, and we're going to do our best to advocate for them. We try to find out if they have family members here in New York or family members on the way, because one of the main things that we like to do is reunite families, because at the border, they've been separated. There's no rhyme or reason. We've reunited so many families, and I'm talking about thousands of families that have been separated, where the mom and the dad don't see each other for weeks or months at a time. The children, there's two daughters that were separated from the mom and dad and their younger siblings. One was sent to Ontario, California. The other one was sent to San Diego, California. We worked diligently to do the research to try to get them together and reunite them here in New York City. And that is one of the main things that we pride ourselves in, is having a conversation with them. Because for the first time, they're actually having someone listen to them, someone that actually cares and wants to know what are their needs. And so the follow-up is it takes into consideration us sharing our phone number with them. And then it's spread throughout the community. And people come to us for all types of help, like whether it's questions about their immigration or they're coming because they need some clothing or some food, any type of resources that are supposed to be shared with them and that they're not getting, they come to us. They come back to the Port Authority. So, yes, we are receiving hundreds and hundreds of people at the Port Authority. Now it's up to like 20,000 plus that are in New York City. But the follow-up means that they're not getting the resources that they deserve. So they trust this place that they first were welcomed. And then they share that within their community. And we try our best to connect with grassroots organizations who are the ones that are doing the work. And we want to be clear with that because there's a lot of um, miscommunication or, or misinformation that the city is doing so much for these migrants and they're, they are well 
off. And that is not the case. We are advocating for them every single day, and we have to be on the ground fighting for them. And they know this. That is why they come back to us and say, hey, we've been at this hotel for two weeks, and we still haven't enrolled our child in school, or we still haven't gotten any type of resources. We're getting cold food, or we're not getting food at, at the time because we don't know when the food is being served. So there's a language barrier, and it's up to us to continue to advocate for these people and let the city know and people that really care that it's the grassroots organizations that need the support because we're not getting the support that we need to be able to make this sustainable. And that's all we want to be able to do, continue to help these people because they deserve to be helped and treated as human beings, not as political pawns as they've been treated for these past uh, several months that I they've mean, been trying to come here to the so city. It's so moving to see you and Adama and others greeting, laying hands on, having signs that welcome people to New York. We see a, a woman in a neck brace. There was a child, right, who didn't have insulin, who was a diabetic. She was four years old. Um, Adama Ba, can you talk specifically about black asylum seekers and if they're treated differently um, than others? Mm. Oh, yeah. There's over 10,000 black, uh, black migrants in New York right now. Uh, black migrants are coming the same route as our South American brothers and sisters. But once they arrive in Texas, they are then transported to another detention center. And they are not released until their asylum case is, is proven. So they have something called positive or negative. So if their asylum case is positive, that means that they have a credible fear of not returning to their country. And then they are released. But they're not just released just like that. Majority of the black migrants that we're working with have a bond. They have the highest bond. Um, the highest I personally seen was 6,000. But these bonds go higher than 6,000. Black migrants have to wear an ankle bracelet. Our Hispanic uh, counterparts are just wearing—are being released by, uh, with a cell phone or not wearing an ankle bracelet. So black migrants are really discriminated, and the city doesn't really have the resources or the language access for them. There has really never been a system created for them. And so my job now and the job of my colleagues and the organizers that I work with is advocating for them, advocating for language access, cultural needs. Um, because these black migrants have already been through a lot in the system, being discriminated. And then when they arrive to New York, they're being discriminated even more. Um, and the issue of Haitians, thousands of Haitians fleeing to this country. Um, uh, the latest news, NBC reporting the Biden administration considering expanding operations at the U.S. military base and prison at Guantanamo Bay to hold Haitians who are caught at sea trying to reach the United States. Um, in the 90s, uh, I remember well the United States using Guantanamo to hold as many as 12,000 Haitians who had fled the U.S. back coup in Haiti against Jean-Bertrand Aristide. Um, so you have that situation, and I don't know what you've heard about that. And then in New York, Randall's Island being used uh, as a major um, site to hold people, particularly single men, I think up to 500 or 1,000, but only a few have gone there. Yeah, that is actually correct. I heard about the Haitians um, being held at Gitmo. And I was horrified because we know the traumas and the things that have happened there. 
Uh, the men that are currently at Randall's, we do follow up with them, and we ask them how they're doing. They do tell us that they're being taken care of very well. Uh, but a lot of the issues that they're facing is there's no social services for them. So they're coming back and asking us what support is there for us. Yeah, I also want to uh, touch base on that because the, the center or the HERC um, at Randall's Island, when it was opened, it was made for it to be temporary. And now we are the ones that are actually sending a lot of people because people are coming by plane and so the buses have decreased. Another thing I want to touch on is the fact that there's been African migrants that were now uh, put into uh, the Randall's Island hurricane. That was done by Sadie and Adamaba, uh, different organizations working together with them. And I want to highlight that and allow Adama to speak about what just occurred this past Sunday, because uh, there's a different story that's being told, and I want to be able to use this time to share that. So, Adama, you should talk about that. Um, Adama. Sadie is this incredible woman. Her, her organization is called Debisha. She's actually been the main point person who has been paying the bond for these black migrants. Uh, once she pays a bond for these black migrants, they're literally just dropped off the streets of Louisiana, Atlanta, uh, Chicago. And then when they're dropped off, they're contacting Sadie to be uh, ticketed to New York City. Uh, they heard that they have a, there's an opportunity in New York City, that they're as safe as black migrants in New York City. So when they arrive in New York City, they contact me. They contact organizers that they know that are on the ground. And a lot, thousands of black migrants, including, have been sleeping in mosques around the country. And it's unfortunate conditions. They're very horrific conditions. And when I saw these conditions, I flagged it to the city to bring awareness to our struggle. And with that opportunity, we took the chance to put them in Herks in Randall's Island. This past Sunday, we took about a, a 45 African men and sent them to the Herc. It was a successful uh, uh, mission. It was successful because these men are now in, you know, warm beds. They're safe. They're being fed. Uh, but still, they're more, they need more support. They need more resources. Um. I also understand on the issue of uh, Haitians being held uh, near Guantanamo that the UNHCR has called on the United States to refrain from forced returns of Haitians. Um, finally, I want to ask you both about what you think the city should be doing that they're not doing now. That's New York City. And then take that na national, what you're doing, uh, Adama and Power, uh, as a model for what should be done around the country or people reaching out to you. I, I think one of the most important thing is that the city needs to be honest about what services and resources they need help with. New Yorkers are—we're amazing. We're incredible. We're willing to step up and say, hey, I'm a doctor. I'm a nurse. I'm a lawyer. I can, you know, I can take some time to help. And most importantly, to work with grassroots that are on the ground. We know the community very well. We at Power and I are connected to about 38 states. We're just contacting other orgs that are on the ground, trying to find solutions and resources. So I want to highlight all the organizations that have been on the ground. But it's also very important to fund us, to give us funding to continue the work that we're doing. 
Yeah, Arma makes a great point because if people think that everything is under control, then they don't even see the grassroots organizations and the work that we're doing. And we're the backbone and the foundation of what's happening right now. And we're the advocates that are not being noticed or not being recognized. So people don't see a reason to donate to us and they don't feel the think, hey, the city has it under control. So we want to be clear that it is the grassroots organizations. For example, I'll reach out to an EV Loves NYC for food, and they've been feeding thousands of migrants that are arriving and the ones that are in the shelter system because we bring food to them. So these are organizations that are on shoestring budgets, but they're actually stepping up. And we want to be clear that when we reach out to other organizations across the country, they are doing the same thing. And if we can do it as grassroots organizations, so can mammoth organizations that have bigger budgets or that have connections to philanthropy, and they can actually help us to continue this work. And all they have to do is reach out. We have the model, we have the solutions, because we're actually on the ground creating this network. And all we do need is the support. We don't well, need the silos being built. This is not a competition. Power Malou, community organizer who runs the group Artists, Athletes and Activists, Adama Ba, community organizer, author of Accused, My Story of Injustice, I Witness. Adama is a refugee from Guinea, has lived in the United States since she was two years old. This is what mutual aid looks like. And a very special thanks to our Democracy Now! producers, Maria Tarasena and Tamari Astudio, Renee Feltz and Robbie Karen. Coming up... The intercepts reveal the Department of Homeland Security's expanding efforts to work with private tech companies and police online speech. Stay with us. Back in less than 30 seconds. Saint Behind the Glass by Los Lobos. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. The intercepts revealed the Department of Homeland Security's expanding efforts to work with private tech companies to police online speech and shape online discourse. The intercepts reporting is based on years of internal DHS memos, emails, and documents. According to one internal document, the agency is focusing on a number of topics, including, quote, the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic and the efficacy of COVID-19 vaccines vaccines, racial justice, U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and the nature of U.S. support to Ukraine, unquote. The FBI has also played a key role in the effort. We're joined now by Lee Fong, who co-wrote the Intercept's investigation headline, Truth Cops, Leaked Documents Outline DHS's Plans to Police Disinformation. Lee, why don't you lay out exactly what you found and how you got these documents? Amy, thank you so much for having me. Good morning. Uh, earlier this week, we reported the story that shows the evolving mission of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, that uh, they're moving to police online discourse under the mantle of uh, fighting alleged disinformation and misinformation. Uh, this effort began in earnest in 2017 after uh, Russian interference in the 2016 election. Uh, there was kind of a dry run of efforts to uh, censor and influence uh, social media around the pandemic, around the 2020 election.
But as you mentioned, documents we obtained uh, from uh, litigation, from uh, public resources, and from uh, whistleblowers uh, shows uh, a really massive uh, expansion uh, of this uh, mission uh, that uh, the DHS plans to weigh in on inherently political topics. Uh, again, as you mentioned, the uh, war in Ukraine, U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, the origins of, of COVID. Um, these are policy topics. Uh, these are areas of contentious debate. It's not clear why the government should be weighing in and giving us the official truth and, and censoring um, dissenting opinions. Uh, th- these documents uh, raise uh, clear civil liberty concerns, concerns around uh, the First Amendment and if the government is trying to shape the kind of news we see. So let's take one example, withdrawal from Afghanistan. Talk exactly about what you found. Well, we, we obtained a draft report of the Department of Homeland Security's quadrennial review. Uh, these are planning documents that shape uh, DHS's um, agenda, uh, their focus over a four-year period. It's basically a planning document that shapes the agency's agenda. And uh, the documents show that the department hopes uh, to focus on issues such as uh, the nature of U.S. support for uh, the war in Ukraine. Um, how they hope to do this is not clear. Uh, what they classify as disinformation or the truth is not clear. Um, we do know um, from, you know, uh, recent history, from uh, a long period of history, that the U.S. government has attempted to shape public opinion around contentious foreign policy issues, that the U.S. government has lied about our support, uh, our, 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 um, the nature of U.S. support for wars in Vietnam, in Iraq, and Afghanistan, uh, why the government uh, sees itself as uh, the arbiter of truth here is, is really not clear, and, and how the government attempts will attempt to shape uh, discourse around the war in Ukraine, again, is not clear. So if you could talk further about um, what exactly CISA is, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Act um, that Donald Trump signed into law, um, and also the Disinformation Governance Board that DHS eventually scrapped. That's right. Um, CISA, uh, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, is a sub-agency of DHS, where a lot of this disinformation, misinformation, policing efforts are housed. Um, This was created by an act of Congress in 2018, signed into law by President Trump. If you look at news coverage around uh, this sub-agency, it's focused around uh, protecting the homeland, uh, the critical infrastructure of the U.S. around water, around utilities, pipelines, um, kind of traditional um, infrastructure. But after being signed into law... Uh, this uh, new uh, bureaucratic arm of DHS really got to work uh, focusing on disinformation and, and alleged misinformation uh, by claiming that um, uh, disinformation or in, any of these kinds of, of false information on social media uh, could pose a threat to the U.S., um, could, could uh, um, disrupt uh, critical infrastructure. Uh, so uh, these efforts uh, technically began under President Trump. Um, they've continued to expand uh, the dis- the Disinformation Governance Board, which was announced by uh, President Biden in, in April, uh, it faced immediate criticism as kind of an Orwellian uh, ministry of truth. Um, a- a- after kind of facing this criticism uh, from um, uh, both left and right, 
uh, Biden uh, shuttered uh, this board in August. Um, But the documents that we report on show that um, the efforts to police social media live on under CISA, uh, which is a a multi-billion dollar agency that that meets monthly uh, with the private sector. Uh, They were uh, meeting regularly. Let me ask you something, uh, because we just have 20 seconds, Lee. Do you see CISA um, in the United States further emboldening autocratic regimes like Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, to force social media companies to repress um, their citizens? Look, every society faces disinformation campaigns, false information on social media. What we're seeing in closed societies, in autocratic societies, is an effort to suppress uh, freedom of speech, to suppress uh, social media, to suppress the press. Um, and in open societies, we should be countering it with more speech, with better speech. Um, the, the question is, uh, as we see across the globe, this this kind of crisis of, of disinformation, will the U.S. take a more uh, open society We're approach gonna have to leave or it there. Uh, adopt the strategies of we'll more closed autocratic regimes? We'll link to your piece, Lee Truth Cops. That does it for our show. Check Thank you out for having me. Election night coverage. I'm Amy Goodman.